Heavenly Father, we believe that we encounter you, that we meet with you in your word. You have spoken through the Bible to us. You've spoken um, most brilliantly and beautifully through Jesus Christ, God the Son. You've also spoken to us through the Bible. So I pray you would speak now. As we read your word, you would um, speak truths into our lives, make us more Christ-like. You would reveal your love and your glory and your power and your majesty to us this morning. Holy Spirit, we, we thank you for your presence with us and we ask that you'd move powerfully during this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we are not quite into December, but we are definitely in the build-up and the run-up to Christmas. Um, I know for some shops that started weeks and months ago, and I don't know how many people have got their Christmas trees up already. There's one or two hands in the room. Um, Hugh's Hugh's looking absolutely furious with you. so we're in the we're in the run up to Christmas, aren't we? We're in the Advent season, and Advent traditionally in the church has been a time uh, where the church does lots of things. Traditionally, the church reflects on the darkness of the world before Christ came and shone His light into the world. That's time for Advent. Advent is reflecting on what would the world be like if Jesus never came. That's the time for Advent. The time of Advent is also reflecting and waiting for the fact that Jesus is going to come again in glory. Jesus came once to die on the cross and to rise again in glory and to save sinners. And he is coming again in glory when the time is right to bring the new heavens and the new earth, to recreate the world in its perfection. So Advent's a time not just waiting to celebrate Christmas, but also waiting for Jesus' second coming. That's what Advent has traditionally been used for. And Advent has also traditionally been a time to read and look at the Old Testament and see the way the Old Testament points forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And we're going to take up that third tradition of Advent to look at the Old Testament and see the way Jesus is beautifully promised in the Old Testament. And so we're entering a new Advent sermon series, which is called Miraculous Births. And during this sermon series, um, starting today and through December, we're going to read some great stories in the Old Testament that reveal God's power and God's love. But these stories also clearly foreshadow the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Christ wasn't just an isolated moment in history. It was, it was foretold. It was, it, was, it was promised in the Old Testament. And the stories we're going to read are going to show us the way God gave us signs to look for before Jesus was born. We're going to begin this series by going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And hopefully that, um, there we go, it's already up there, brilliant, thanks guys. In Genesis 3 verse 15, God gives a promise. The fall has just happened, Adam and Eve have disobeyed God, they've, um, yeah, God gave them a command and they've disobeyed his command, so the fall's happened, and as a consequence, the world is ruined. God created the world in goodness and in perfection, but the human beings rejected God and disobeyed his commandments. And so something's gone wrong in the world. And yet, in the midst of this disaster, in this calamity, God speaks a promise. And this is what he says. He's actually speaking to the serpent, to the voice of evil in the Garden of Eden when he says this. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that, that, that verse, that promise can be understood in two ways. Firstly, it can be understood as just a general hostility between humans and evil or humans and snakes. There's kind of just this general promise that humans and snakes are not going to get on with one another. And humans and evil are going to not get on very well with each other. There's a general hostility. But it's also a very, very specific promise as well from God. Because what God is saying in that verse is there is an offspring coming. There is a son of woman coming. There is a seed who is coming, one offspring. And he shall bruise the head of the serpent. This one who is responsible for evil coming into the world shall be bruised by the offspring who is coming. And in later translations, that word bruise gets intensified into the word crush. This offspring who is coming, in response to this promise, will crush the head of evil. And that promise shapes the way you read Genesis. It shapes the way you read the whole Old Testament, actually. Every time there's a genealogy in the book of Genesis, you're going, oh, is, this, is the one at the end of the genealogy, is this son, is this going to be the offspring who will crush the head of evil? So, you, you know, you read an, uh, a genealogy and you get to the Noah, for example, and you go, oh, Noah's got a genealogy. He must be a really important person. Is he going to be the one who crushes evil's head? And it turns out, although Noah was a faithful man, a godly man, he isn't the one that was promised. And so you read through the whole Old Testament and you have these special moments where babies are born. And each time you read one of those stories or one of those genealogies, you should think about this promise and think, is this the one? Is this the person? Is this the offspring who is going to crush evil's head? And so we're going to read a birth narrative, a miraculous birth story. Um, together and we're going to you know come with it is this the one is this the is this the guy who's going to crush evil's head we're going to read together the story of the birth of Samson from Judges chapter 13 so if you've got a bible turn to Judges chapter 13 if not the words will appear on the screen and we're going to read this story of this birth of this man you may have even if you're not a regular churchgoer you may have heard of this guy Samson he's famous for being extremely strong and quite wild character. But let's, um, let's read together Judges 13 and the birth of Samson. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Just let me interject very briefly there. This is a regular pattern in the book of Judges. The people of Israel do what is evil in the sight of God. And so God, in his mercy, gives them over into the hands of their enemies. He's kind of saying, hey, if you walk away from me, there's going to be disaster waiting for you. And so God gives them into the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines conquer the nation of Israel. And God hopes that they will return to him, cry out for mercy. So this is, this is a regular pattern that's happened throughout this book. You'll notice in this story that the people of Israel do not cry out for mercy. So earlier in the book of Judges, the people cry out and ask God to forgive them. But in this story, they don't cry out. They don't return to the Lord. Verse 2. There was a a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. 
Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife. And came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let, drink, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honour you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanedan between Zorah and Ashtaol. The first thing I would like you to see in that passage that I've just read to you is that we have a miraculous birth, an angel visitation, promising a saviour who would be born. Did you see that as I read to you in that passage? We have a miraculous birth, an angel visitation and a promise that a saviour would be born. In verse 2, we're told that Manoah's wife was barren and childless, that she could not bear children. And yet God, 
who has the power to give life, works a miracle within her, in her womb. And we see this amazing promise given by the angel to this lady who was probably torn up and and has struggled with her barrenness for many, many years. Well, God gives her a promise that he is able to give life and he opens her womb, promises that she would bear a child. It's 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 a miraculous birth. It's an amazing thing that happens in this story simply because it's, it's, it's a couple finally getting something that they've probably prayed for for years and years and years. It's an answer to prayer in that sense and a wonderful promise. And so I want to encourage us, when we read stories like this, when we read stories of miraculous births, our faith should be lifted. Because this is a story about the power of God to do great things, even for this couple, Manoah and his wife. We should be prompted, when we read stories like this, to pray for the miraculous and believe in God's power. We've sung a song about God being the way maker and the miracle worker. And we've heard, we've had, we've heard um, prophecies about you know, pieces of puzzles. Maybe the piece of the puzzle that you, you need right now is a miracle from God. Maybe you need to see him work. What, what are you asking for God? I would encourage you on the basis of this story to believe that God can work miracles. Because first and foremost, right on the surface, this is a story about God working a miracle in a couple's life. Be bold to pray. And believe in God's power and also believe in God's goodness. God knows what's right for you. He knows what's good for you. He always answers prayer in a way that shows love to you. Now, so I want us to be a bold church, praying for the miraculous, believing in God's power. But I also think stories like this should prompt us to pray for new spiritual birth in people's lives. When we read a story about a miraculous birth, We should believe that this is not only true of physical birth, but it's also true of spiritual birth. And I know there are people in this room who have friends and family members who they long to see, believe in Jesus Christ, come to faith, enter the family of God, receive forgiveness, know that eternal life is a gift given to them through Jesus Christ. And so if God can work a miracle in this woman's womb and give new life there, well, we believe that God can also work a miracle in our friends' and family's lives and bring new spiritual life there as well. So as we read this story, as we're sitting here, we should be praying, Lord, we want to see miracles. We want to see you do powerful, amazing things. But we also want to see you do miracles in a spiritual way and giving new life to our friends and family. Just lift them up in prayer as I'm preaching now, believing that God can answer those prayers. Maybe you have a a friend who you think faith in Jesus could never be born in that person. You you think that that person's spiritual life is completely barren. There could never be a spiritual birth there. And yet this story is a story of a barren woman giving birth. And so it should prompt us and challenge us to pray for that person and believe that God really can bring new life into the heart where you think there could never be faith there. So we have a miraculous birth, don't we? In this story, we have an angel visitation in verse three. It says the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. And then in verse nine, the angel of the Lord appears again to the woman. I enjoy verses nine and ten because God listens to the prayer of Manoah and sends the angel of the Lord who visits the woman in a field. And then I can imagine the, the wife of Manoah going, Oh, hang on, hang on a second. I just need to grab my husband. And she runs back, you know, sprints back to get her husband. He's here again. He's stay there. Stay there. I've got to go and get my husband. And she runs to go and get Manoah. And she brings him to the field so that he too can hear from the angel of the Lord who, I don't know, did the angel just stand there? Did he read a book? Like, what did he do while he was waiting for them to get to them? I don't know. 
Um, the woman runs quickly to get him. So we have a miraculous birth, we have an angel visitation in Judges 13, and we have a promise. Have a look at the end of verse 3, it says, you shall conceive and bear a son. And then in verse 5, we're told the purpose of this son who would be born. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. A miraculous birth, an angel, and a saviour is born. If you know your nativity stories, you're hopefully beginning to see some of the ways in which this story patterns the birth of Jesus Christ. Because that's exactly what this story is really for. Yes, the people of Israel needed a saviour in Judges 13. And Samson was the man who God had chosen to rescue them from the hand of the Philistines. And yet in reality... This story is a foreshadowing. It's a prophetic birth. It's pointing forward to a greater saviour who was to come. And in fact, Christ's birth is in every way more spectacular than this story. In Samson, it's a barren woman giving birth. Amazing miracle. But in the New Testament, it's a virgin giving birth, something that's truly impossible. In Judges 13, it's one angel of the Lord appearing twice. In, in the nativity story, in the story of Christ's birth, it's an angel appearing multiple times, Gabriel to Mary, and then in a dream to Joseph. And then a whole company of angels appear to the shepherds in the field and sing songs of glory to the Lord. So it's more spectacular, isn't it? One angel in Judges 13, multiple angels in, in Luke, in the beginning of Luke's gospel. And of course, the salvation on offer in Christ is far more glorious and more spectacular than the salvation spoken of in Judges 13. In Judges 13, the salvation on offer is Samson's going to begin to save you from the hand of the Philistines. You know, you've been conquered by your enemies and Samson's going to begin to defeat them and release you from this slavery that you are suffering under. But Christ comes with an altogether more glorious salvation. He comes to save people from their sins. He comes to save people from death. He, those great enemies, not just the Philistines, who, who may have been a mighty nation, but their power pales in comparison to sin and death. Christ comes on a mission to die on the cross to rescue us from the things we have done wrong in order that we might have the gift of everlasting life. And so Samson's story is an amazing story but in so many ways it's pointing to a more glorious and more spectacular story. The birth of Christ, a virgin birth with multiple angels, one who comes to save people who've done things wrong from their sins so that they might be forgiven and have everlasting life. What a glorious salvation we have in Jesus Christ. That's my first point this morning. A miraculous birth, angels and a saviour, a pointing to Jesus Christ, a pattern of Christ in a sense in Judges chapter 13. The second thing I want us to think about is that Samson was a Nazarite. Let me, have, let me read to you verses 4 and 5 again. This is what the angel of the Lord says. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So Samson was a Nazarite. 
Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Nazarite? Well, here's the thing. In Numbers chapter 6, the Israelites are given instructions on something called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow where you dedicated yourself to the Lord for a certain period of time. It was a limited period of time. And during that time, the Israelite Nazarite would say, I want to be devoted to God. So I'm not going to drink alcohol during this period. I'm not going to cut my hair during this period. And I'm not going to have any contact with anything dead or unclean. That's what it was to be a Nazarite. You would almost just take yourself out of your everyday life in order to just give yourself to prayer and to worship, to loving God. That's what a Nazarite vow was, according to Numbers chapter 6. A voluntary vow for a limited period of time. Samson's vow, then, is unique and different to that, isn't it? It wasn't voluntary. Samson doesn't say himself, I'm going to be a Nazarite, I'm going to go for it. No, he's not even born yet when he's being told that he's going to be a Nazarite. So it wasn't a voluntary vow. It wasn't for a set time either. It says from the womb to death, Samson is to be a Nazarite. This is very, very different to the instructions given in Numbers chapter 6. And the other thing to know about Samson is that he broke all of the rules. So he didn't voluntarily offer himself up. It wasn't just for a set period, and he broke every single one of the Nazarite commandments. In chapter 14, let me just give you an idea of how much he broke the commandments. So one of the rules was you weren't meant to associate with the dead. In chapter 14, he kills a lion. It's a remarkable story in and of itself. And then when he walks past the dead carcass of the lion later on, he sees that there's a a beehive and there's honey. And so he's not meant to touch the dead. He's already killed the lion, so he kind of already touched the dead. And he goes up to the lion's carcass and he starts scooping out honey in order for him to eat this honey out of the dead carcass of the lion. That is not, that's associating with the dead, according to the Jewish rules. And in chapter 15, he, he kills thousands of Philistines as well. So Samson was not meant to associate with the dead. He very much does. He's meant to abstain from wine. But in chapter 14, he has a wedding feast. And it is extremely lun- likely that at this wedding feast, he enjoyed himself a bit too much, basically. He was, he was having a lot of fun at this wedding. So he was meant to abstain from wine, and he didn't. He was meant to not associate with the dead, and he did do that and finally no razor was ever to come upon his head and a lot of you might know the story of Samson's wife who manages to convince him eventually to get his hair cut and his strength goes from him in that moment so Samson broke all of the rules he was a rubbish Nazarite like just the worst in every way he totally messed up in fact if Samson was to walk in here now and just sit down in our church, I think we would be pretty terrified of him. He was this man of great strength, but completely wild, not following any of the rules. I don't think there would be anyone who would go, this is the guy God's going to use to say, this is, this is the guy, he, he's the holiest man. No one would say that. We'd go, this guy's wild, he's sinful, he needs some serious pastoral help in various areas of his life. Um, you know, we're a welcoming church, so we'd love him to join us and be with us. But at the same time, as, as the pastor, I feel like, oh wow, I'm going to have to go for coffee with this guy. I don't know how it's going to go. So he, he, there'll be nothing about him that make us go, yes, this is, this is the man that God's going to use. We wouldn't think of him as a godly man, I don't think. Um, 
You know, how many people do you know who's killed a lion with their bare hands and then eaten honey out of the carcass? Is that what you associate with holiness and godliness? Probably not. Now, this should be extremely encouraging to us. Why is this an ex- a great encouragement to us that Samson was this wild Nazarite who broke all of the rules? Well, two reasons. Firstly, God achieves his purposes through Samson's life. He does bring an end to what the Philistines are doing to the Israelites. He uses Samson mightily in spite of him being a rubbish Nazarite, in spite of him being a sinful man. God achieves his purposes through Samson's life. And we know that nothing is impossible for our God. We know that nothing can stop him achieving his purposes. He's mighty and glorious and he uses He uses people who aren't perfect to do amazing, amazing things. So we should be hugely encouraged by Samson, in a sense. Despite the fact that he was an aggressive, slightly difficult person to get on with. And that should be a huge encouragement to us. You know, I I know I mess up all the time. And so it's a comfort to me to know that God can even use Samson's. Maybe he might be able to use me as well. That's the first reason Samson's being a rubbish Nazarite should be an encouragement to you. But the second reason, have a look at verse 25, uh, 13 verse 25, right at the end of the chapter. The spirit of the Lord began to stir Samson. And then it gives some place names about where that began to happen. And, you know, this is not the only time. When the Holy Spirit begins to move in Samson's life here, the spirit stirs him. But on three occasions after chapter 13, the Holy Spirit rushes upon Samson and clothes him in power. In chapter 14, verse 6, in chapter 14, verse 19, and in chapter 15, verse 14, the same words are used. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson. So here in 13, 13, the Holy Spirit stirring in Samson, but later on in his life, the Holy Spirit rushes upon him in power. And here's what I want us to take from that. Samson's sin does not disqualify him from experiencing the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Do you see that? He's, He's not earning the Spirit's power. He's not earning the Holy Spirit's presence But God, in his grace and mercy, pours out the Holy Spirit upon him in power. Now now think, the Holy Spirit is a person. So imagine the Holy Spirit for a moment rushing in power upon Samson or stirring in his heart and suddenly going, hang on a second, I don't want to rush on power upon this guy. He's a maniac. He's the worst Nazarite ever. No, that's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit shows the same grace and love of Jesus Christ when Jesus died for us. That was an act of grace. That was an act of love. And the Holy Spirit in regards to Samson, shows the same grace and love. He chooses to rush upon him. He chooses to clothe him in power. He chooses to stir in his heart in spite of the things that he's got wrong in his life. Do you know that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit fell upon individuals in power? rushed upon individuals in power. People like Samson. There are other judges like Gideon who are filled or clothed with power from the Holy Spirit. And there are great kings and leaders. David is a man described as having received the Holy Spirit's power. In the Old Testament, it was individuals, specific individuals chosen to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. But in the New Testament, 
The whole point of the day of Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all flesh, on everyone who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord promised. The Spirit will be poured out on all your sons and daughters. Your old men will see visions. Your young men will dream dreams. Even on your male and female servants, says God, I will pour out my spirit. And that's what happened at Pentecost. The the disciples, the apostles, were filled with the Holy Spirit as he was poured out upon them. And then the people were, were filled with the Holy Spirit as well. It was an amazing moment. It was not the same as the Old Testament where individuals, special individuals, are chosen to receive the Holy Spirit. But in the New Testament, all flesh... All believers in Christ receive the Holy Spirit in power. And so what I want us to take from this story is that Samson's sin does not disqualify him from experiencing the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, whether you you would think, oh, I don't know whether I deserve to be in this church. I don't know whether I'm good enough to receive the Holy Spirit. I want you to be encouraged. You are not disqualified from receiving the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe there are some non-Christians in the room or people watching online, people who know nothing about the Holy Spirit. Well, let me encourage you. God promises to give you himself in spiritual form in the person of the Holy Spirit by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It's this amazing moment where you believe in Jesus and you're filled with God himself who dwells within you. And if you're not a Christian, you're going, I don't know whether this is true, I'm interested, but I don't know, I would encourage you, pray and ask God, would you meet with me? Would you reveal yourself to me? Would, you, would I experience the stirring that Samson experiences in Judges 13 of the Holy Spirit moving in my heart and mind and revealing his presence? Maybe you're a Christian, and you say, yeah, I've, I felt the Holy Spirit stirring in me. I know he dwells in my heart. I know I only have faith in Jesus because the Holy Spirit has given me the gift of faith. Maybe you know the stirring of the Holy Spirit that Samson experienced in chapter 13. Are you hungry for more? Are you hungry for a rushing of the Spirit's presence and power in your life? Have you asked for that? Have you sought that? Have you waited on God? Believing that what Samson experiences in the rest of his story can also be for you, for the Holy Spirit is to be poured out on all flesh. I think today is an encouragement for us to seek greater empowerment, a rush of the Holy Spirit in this place and in our lives. And maybe you're a Christian and you've known powerful encounters in the past. You say, yeah, I've known a moment in my life where it really did feel like the Holy Spirit rushed upon me in power. And maybe maybe you spoke in tongues or you prophesied or you operated in the spiritual gifts or you just knew a great sense of peace. Or maybe you shook or, or there's all kinds of different ways in which the Holy Spirit manifests his presence. But maybe you've known that. You've gone, yeah, that... There was a moment where the Holy Spirit rushed upon me. I want to ask you, are you still hungry for more? Did you notice that it wasn't just once that the Holy Spirit rushed upon Samson and then that was it? He just just went on about, no, the Holy Spirit came three times into his life, rushed upon him in power. And the same is true in the New Testament of the Apostles. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls upon the Apostles. And then in Acts chapter 4, they're praying and asking God to give them boldness to evangelise. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them and shakes the room. They have multiple moments of knowing the rushing of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So don't, 
I think sometimes you can go, yeah, I've, I've had that moment. I've, I've done that. I've been there. But that's not what Christians are called to. Christians are called to be hungry and thirsty for more of God each and every day. So unless you're like living the perfect life, you're, you're the dream Christian, you're, you're absolutely spirit-filled in everything that you say and do, we should be hungry for his presence and his power more and more in our lives. Asking, seeking, waiting upon him, praying for boldness to evangelise and believing that in those moments God can pour out the Holy Spirit. Now last week um, John Hosier um, preached to us, it's an amazing, a fantastic sermon about what the church is and if you haven't watched it then I would encourage you to go back and watch the recording um, because it was, it was biblical and it was rich and it was deep and it, it really encouraged me and, and gave me a vision, gave us a vision for what the church should be when we gather. So do go back and listen to it. I had the pleasure of I'm having lunch with him at Jeff and Laurie's house and um, just I, I was just asking questions because um, John, John's a good friend of Terry Virgo and knows the history of New Frontiers and I'm just a youngster, I don't know any of that story. I've just read it in books so it was nice to chat to someone who'd been there and been part of that experience. And one of the questions I was asking is when I read these books... It seems like God is really on the move. He's doing mighty and amazing things. People's lives are being transformed. Are we, what, why is that? What was going on then? Why aren't we seeing that same thing now? And John just talked about baptism in the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. There was a real thirst and hunger for experiencing God. That maybe we don't have any. Maybe we've lost that hunger and thirst for God. We've just gone, yeah, we're doing okay. We know the stirring of the Spirit, so we're doing all right. I would encourage you, seek, be hungry, be thirsty for the spirit rushing upon you in power. Because boy, do we need God's power in our lives. That's just a wonderful thing. So we're seeking that. We're hungry. We're thirsty for that. And at the end of this sermon, I'm going to give us time to get a bit messy this morning and to pray for one another, to receive the Holy Spirit, to encounter him again in power. But before we do that, let me move on to my third and final point this morning from Judges chapter 13. Am I... My last question is, who is the angel of the Lord in Judges 13? Because in one sense, this is a story about Samson. It's a story about Manoah and his wife. But ultimately, as you read the story, there's more and more said about the angel of the Lord in Judges 13. It kind of feels like he's the hero, in a sense, of this chapter. When he first appears, Manoah's wife sees him just as a man. In verse 6, she says, a man of God came to me. But then she says, not just any man. It wasn't just any man. His appearance was like an angel. Very awesome. That's what she said at the end of verse 6. So the angel of the Lord is a man with a very awesome angelic appearance in this passage. And there's something of a mystery about this man because Manoah's wife says, well, he didn't tell me his name. He didn't say who he was. I didn't, like, he just told me some great things, but he didn't introduce himself in any way. And so Manoah's really like, well, I want to know, who is this guy? And in verse 17, he gets his opportunity. And Manoah says, what is your name? Who are you? Who are you? This man who keeps appearing to my wife. And in verse 18, the angel of the Lord responds by saying, why do you ask my name? For it is wonderful. For it is wonderful. And there's two ways of understanding that response. I think the angel of the Lord is being deliberately cryptic in that answer. He could be saying, my name is too wonderful for you. I can't, I can't tell you my name because it's so wonderful 
If I told, told it to you, you'd just be blown away. That's one way of understanding that answer. But another way of understanding what the angel of the Lord says is this. He's saying, my name is wonderful. Why do you ask my name? It is wonderful. He might say he's, he's saying one of those two things. I think he's saying both and deliberately giving kind of a quite clever answer, which has uh, got a bit of mystery around it. So he's saying my name is wonderful, but yeah, he might, I'm called wonderful. It's what the angel of the Lord might be saying. Now, do you know there is someone else who is called wonderful in the Bible? In Isaiah 9, verse 6, a promise through the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah who would be born. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of peace. I've missed one out. I don't have it written down in front of me. Anyone got the last one? No. Everla- uh, everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Thank you. Now, it's, the Hebrew grammar is difficult there. Is it wonderful counsellor or is it wonderful counsellor? Are there four names of this baby in that verse or are there five names? Now, I tend to favour that there's five names, that this baby is called Wonderful in Isaiah 9, verse 6. So when the angel of the Lord says, my name is wonderful, is he kind of linking in with Isaiah 9, verse 6 and trying to say, do you know who I am? Do you know how? I'm the one who is coming. I'm Jesus Christ appearing in the Old Testament. Is this a pre-incarnate Jesus speaking to Manoah, the one who is truly called wonderful? And this would seem to be confirmed by what happens in verse 20. So in verse 20, Manoah and his wife offer a sacrifice to the Lord and they set it on fire, as you're supposed to do, and they stand back and they watch the sacrifice. And then in the flames, the angel of the Lord is taken up in the flames into heaven. And so they know that this angel of the Lord has come from heaven and they fall on their faces, don't they? And they say to each other, or at least Manoah says to his wife, we're going to die. We've seen God. We're surely going to die. The Jews in the Old Testament had a really strong sense that when people who'd done things wrong, when sinners came into the presence of a holy God, they would die. They were unable to stand in the presence of God. And we know as Christians that we're only able to stand in the presence of God because Jesus has died for us, because we're made perfect in Christ's blood. And so whenever a Jewish person thought they'd been in the presence of God, they knew they were going to die. And that's what Manoah says to his wife, we're surely going to die. And then Manoah's wife kind of responds with, with sensibleness, doesn't she? She goes, well, you know, if we were really going to die, we wouldn't have been able to have this conversation. We wouldn't have been promised that we we're going to have a child. Like, she's worked it out, but they believe that they have seen God in the flesh, in the person of the angel of the Lord. And so this is what I want to argue. Jesus is not only patterned in Judges 13. The birth of Jesus is very clearly patterned in Judges 13. But Jesus is also present This is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ appearing and bringing this word of prophecy to Manoah and his wife. He is a man, an awesome man, called Wonderful, who ascends into heaven, who is God. Isn't it amazing to think that this chapter, written so many years before Jesus Christ was born, patterns him and promises him, and, and he's even present in this passage of scripture. John Piper says this, on every page 
of the Old Testament Bible. Jesus is either patterned, promised or present. That's an amazing thing. Patterned, promised or present. And here in Judges 13, you've got at least two out of the three. He's very clearly patterned and he's very clearly present. And what I want to finish on is this idea. If Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament, he's there present in some form. Shouldn't it also be true that he is on every page of our lives as we live for him? We pattern Jesus by following his example. We go, I'm living for Christ. I'm, tr- I'm, I'm trying to live my life a bit like Christ did. And so people look at you and go, wow, why are you so humble? Why are you so generous? Why are you so loving? Why are you so caring? You're patterning Christ by the way that you live. Jesus is promised by our words. We say there is a saviour, Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, you'll be forgiven of your sin and you'll be able to enter into everlasting life. So we promise Jesus to our friends and family. As we share the gospel, as we reveal Jesus to others, we, we pattern Jesus in our lives. We promise him with our words. And of course, Jesus is present in us and with us wherever we go. That's what Jesus says in the Great Commission. Surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He dwells in our hearts because the Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Christ, dwells in our hearts. And so I want, I want to say, this is, it's amazing that in the Old Testament, Jesus is patterned, promised and present. Isn't it perhaps even more amazing that in our lives, Jesus is patterned, promised and present? Are you seeking to live your life so that Jesus is on every single page if I got a biography of your life of all the things you've done would I be able to find something of Christ on every single page as you seek to follow his example as you seek to proclaim him and as you know that he is with you wherever you go now if we're going to live like that if we're going to live like our whole Christ is on every page our whole life is given over to Jesus Christ then we definitely need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our lives And so I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite the band to come up as well. And I want us to pray. I want us to pray. Let's stand together. If you are in one of these three categories, I want to invite you to reach out your hands as though receiving from God. Maybe you're not a Christian, but you want to know something of God. I want you to reach out your hands as though God's going to speak to you and give you a gift in this moment, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why don't you stretch out your hands if that's you? If you're a Christian and you've known the stirrings of the Holy Spirit, but you're hungry and thirsty for more in your life, you you want to know what Samson experienced when the Holy Spirit rushed upon him in power. If you want a moment like that encountering God, I want to invite you to stretch out your hands now. And if you're in my third category, if you've known the glorious encounter with God, the power of the Holy Spirit rushing upon you. But, you know, that was a moment, uh, maybe a a long time ago, maybe more recent, but maybe a long time ago, and you want more of that, then I encourage you to reach out your hands as though receiving from God. And I'm going to pray for us. If you're on one of those three categories, reach out and let's pray together for God to move mightily that we would encounter him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you promise to give good gifts to your children when we ask. And so we're asking for a good gift together, 
Lord, we're praying that you would give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his presence in our lives. But Lord, we're hungry and thirsty for more of your presence. We're hungry and thirsty for you to break idols in our lives, for you to reveal that you are the good God, the loving God, the wonderful God who is with us always. Lord, we need more of your power to live these lives, pointing to Jesus Christ. And so we do ask that this would be a moment of encounter. This would be a moment of empowerment. This would be a moment where you reveal yourself in glory through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I want to pray if there are non-Christ people who do not yet know the salvation of Jesus here, Lord God, would you reveal yourself to them? Maybe if they're at home, Lord God, would you reveal that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Saviour? Fill them with the Holy Spirit. Give them the gift of faith, I pray. Come in power. For those who have only known stirrings of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask for more. We're hungry for you. We pray that you would pour out your spirit again in power. Give us the gifts of the Spirit. Give us an encounter with you, knowing that you are here in glory. And I pray for those of us who maybe had experience in the, in the past, Lord God, but we know that you act multiple times through our lives, that we might meet with you in power. And so we pray, Lord God, pour out your Holy Spirit. Reveal yourself to us. Lord, we want boldness for evangelism. We want to be equipped to live for you. We want to pattern Jesus by following his example. We want to promise Jesus with words spoken about how wonderful he is. And we want to know you're present with us every single step of the way. So we ask now, Lord God, for you to come in power. Heavenly Father, we wait for you to move.